AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. This is Ben B., your host for today, as I'm going to be interviewing John as we get to hear a little bit more about uh, the head honcho of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing, John? I'm doing really good, thank you. And you're a real pro at this. Well... You know, I like to put people on the spot, but um, didn't I think we had some requests from some people who were like, oh, we never heard a lot of John's stories, so that would be good to hear. So here we are. Well, it'll be fun. Anything new going on lately, John? No, uh, other than, you know, what we were talking about um, last week a little bit. Um, you know, I've had a situation at work that's going on, that's actually turning out pretty well for me, and I've been spending mm-hmm. a lot of time at work, though. I'm going to have to eventually find some kind of a balance between work and AA and life. It's kind of typical right now. It's, I guess these companies, they, they have you work pretty much all the time. You know, we've got the technology to, you know, check our emails at home and do our work from home and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but it's going yeah. okay. Well, good. Well, I know we talked a little bit about before the podcast about how we wanted to do it. And, um, you know, I maybe you can just start off by telling us a little bit about growing up and where you were born and that kind of stuff, if you feel comfortable doing that. Well, sure. Okay. Um, well, I, I was, uh, I grew up in a military family. Uh, my father mm-hmm. was career army and both of my parents came from a small town in Florida, uh, New Smyrna Beach. Mm. Um, and, uh, I was born in Fort Benning, Georgia. That's... So, uh, growing up, uh, we moved around a lot. And, uh, so I lived in a lot of different places. Uh, though by the time I got to high school, we settled here in the Midwest. But, um, you know, I think I had a pretty, um, kind of a mixed bag childhood you know i i remember you know some of my earliest memories are of my parents fighting and i mean yelling and screaming um and there mm-hmm. was always a lot of that growing up but there was a lot of um yelling and screaming um but um nothing's all black and white there was also a lot of laughter and love and mm-hmm. my parents were very affectionate towards each other um and there there were times when we would gather as a family and i'd feel very comfortable but then there were other times when my father would come home and just anything would set him off and mm-hmm. he'd just be downright violent. So there was a lot of growing up, um, you know, I, I know now that I had this really deep sense of insecurity and fear um, because of this unpredictability in my household you know i never mm-hmm. knew what i was gonna get happy father or mean father or you know my right. mother was mentally ill um and she she suffered from depression and so we're talking about you know when i was growing up would be the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. and um you know during that time they didn't really have the you know prozac and and the good types of i guess effective medications like they do now so she was uh taking things that would make her like very drowsy and and um, she so she would be she would spend a lot of time in her room, you know, she'd spend mm-hmm. a lot of time sleeping. And sometimes she would have these little bursts of anger. And, and every once in a while, by the time I got to high school, they would just take her away. And, and I think that they would they would have her like in the mental ward or something. But our family never really talked about it. So mm-hmm. all that was going on in the background. And I guess I know now, Ben, that this is what 
set me up for alcoholism. Um, I mm-hmm. joke sometimes that if my parents wanted to create an alcoholic, they did a really good job. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they didn't mean to do it. But there was booze all over our house. Um, I don't know if this is standard practice for people who are in the Army, but my father used to have a lot of parties where, you know, the Army buds would come over and, and there'd be a lot of drinking. And um, yep. so... As a little kid, and I'm talking, you know, seven, eight years old, um, after these parties, I would go downstairs and I would drink the leftover bourbon or whiskey or, you know, wine or whatever um, was left over after the parties. And mm-hmm. I was always attracted to alcohol. I loved it. And I didn't, it didn't register with me at the time what was going on. But I know now looking back that I was using it as, I was using it as a drug. I was using it to change the way I felt. And there was something about, there was something about the alcohol that made me feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that something, it did something for me. And I just remember that as a little kid. And, yeah. you know, I remember my very first drink that my mother um, allowed me to have. And again, I'm probably not even nine years old. Maybe I'm nine. I don't know. Ten. And, um, it was, uh, it was wine at Thanksgiving dinner and she wanted to teach me to drink like a gentleman. And, um, I couldn't. <laughs> yeah. I just love the stuff. And, uh, so that's, that's kind of my background with how I got attracted to, or, you know, alcohol. But, right. you know, I, did you have I any siblings, Sean? I did. I had, um, I have, uh, two, I have actually three. I have an older brother and an older sister from my mother's previous marriage and then my younger brother um who who is from my mother's second marriage since we share we share the same father mm-hmm. um, my uh younger brother is i've talked about him before he's he's severely mentally ill he he has um oh it's a psychoaffective disorder Mm-hmm. And he, so he gets psychotic if he's not on medication. And right now he's not. So he's not communicating with us. And then I have an older brother who um, is very religious. And so, you know, I, I get along with my family, but he, he's someone that he's so religious, Ben, that I, I still haven't told him I'm an atheist. Yeah. <laughs> it just is too much for him to handle. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's crazy, but he's convinced I'm going to go to hell. And then I have a sister who lives actually here in Kansas who um, seems to be the most normal of the bunch, the most more like me, put it that way. Um, so your parents did divorce eventually, it sounded like? No, they didn't. They stayed oh. together. Uh, my okay. parents my parents stayed together. My mother divorced. She got married in, right out of high school, so back in the 1950s. And so she divorced and married my father. Oh, okay. They, they stayed married up until the time that my mother died. And so you said your mom was aware she had mental illness, right? Like it wasn't like she denied it. Right. She was aware. And during the 1970s, you know, she was getting help. Um, And and I know she was. And I, I remember as a kid, for whatever reason, being embarrassed that my mother was seeing a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Isn't that weird? And so our I think it's pretty we, common, I would bet, though. Yeah. We that never that people would it. feel that way. Yeah. It is something our family never talked about. And I, I didn't want anyone to know. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was weird. Um, you know, looking back on it, it probably would have been good for that doctor to bring the family in for a session or something to, yeah. to help us know. But this is, you know, a different era, you know. For sure. For sure. Well, it's just like um, I think about people who are in recovery who've been sober for a while. It's like people don't want people to know they're alcoholics because of the stigma. But it's like you'd rather have somebody who's in recovery and taking care of their alcoholism 
working for you than somebody who's still in denial and still drinking all the time, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that the stigma is getting less and less with um, younger people, at least when it comes to addiction. Yeah. And I think that has to do with all the media and, and everything. There's a more, there's more awareness of what addiction is, um, and less shame attached to it, I think. Anyway, I, I get that, I get that sense. Yeah, I do too. I do too. So what was school like growing up? And I, I can imagine moving around a little bit. Was it kind of tough? Like you'd make friends and then have to move that whole type of thing? Yeah. Army brats are kind of unique. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's actually a book that I read some time ago called Brats, and it's all about army brats and how they and the issues that they come up with. And if you've ever seen the movie The Great Santini, that's a really good mm. description of what it's like growing up in a military family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, you can't paint them all with a broad brush, but yeah, moving around. It was something I actually enjoyed. It was like, uh, you know, a, a fresh start. I could create a new persona at whatever place I was going to be moving to. And it's funny how, you know, different places that people would treat you differently based upon how they, they perceive you, you know, what kind of person they think you are or where you're coming from or whatever. But I really enjoyed it. And my family... It, there was always a sense of fun and adventure about it. You know, mm-hmm. um, wherever we were going to go, it was just, oh boy, this is going to be exciting to learn about this new place. And it was just always fun. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we, we camped. So wherever we were, we went out camping and we explored the country. Um, so I, you know, I was born in Georgia. I lived in uh, Florida when my father was in, v- in Vietnam. So this has been like in 1968. This is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Then I lived in Virginia, uh, and then we moved to the Netherlands. And I was there. We were there for like about four and a half years, really. It was a long one of our my father's longer assignments, and it was a great place to be a kid. I just I just loved it there. Um, then we moved over to after that we went to upstate New York, where I lived for two years. And at that time, I was like um, twelve and thirteen, eleven and twelve, I think. 11 and 12. Mm-hmm. And I loved it there in New York. It was great. We uh, we lived uh, in a suburb of Albany. And upstate New York is absolutely beautiful. We used to go camping in Lake George. And um, I had a lot of friends um, in the neighborhood. Um, you know, I could get on my bike and we could just go anywhere we wanted to. I just loved it. We were there for two years. And then my father got um, an assignment to Leavenworth, Kansas to teach mm-hmm. at the Command General Staff College. And I have to tell you, um, of all the moves that we made, that last move we made from New York to Kansas was the most difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a change. <laughs> it was. It, it was It was harder than going to Europe or anything. Um, but it was like... Um, that was where I had the most difficult time. But of course, I'm getting older. And what happened? Right. My parents decided they want to live out in the country. So we lived out in the country where there was nothing but cows and, mm-hmm. and, and there were no kids. And, um, I would go to school. And at that time, um, the town that I lived in, it was really, really a small town. I don't even know if there were 3,000 people there. And it was a lot different back then. I mean, it's grown a lot now and there's a lot of modern amenities and it's more of a bedroom community of Kansas City. But back then it was, it was just, you know, the people I went to school with, it was a very small school. We had like, in my high school, there were like 400 people. And, mm. and, and most of the time, uh, like when I very first got there, most of the kids were either farm kids or their parents worked at the prison or Hallmark. There weren't like other military families, very many of them anyway. But that's all changed. Now it's really kind that, that town I lived, it was Lansing. It was, uh, now, now it's more, it's a bigger town and it, there's a lot more military people that go there and the school's a lot bigger. 
So mm-hmm. I came from New York as a kid, and I was trying to fit in with these um, farm kids and stuff, and it just didn't work out too well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I suppose with the the whole brat thing too, and moving around, it it tends to make people, I think, like hard to make attachments, like long term attachments, yeah. or open up to people. I still have that with me. I can move on. I I can leave, uh, you know, and and just go start afresh somewhere else. I don't really have any problem with that. That's very true, Ben. It's very interesting, but it's true. Well, you know where I learned that? You were talking about that book, and I saw a documentary. I think it's called Bratz. It's like Our Journey Home or something like Mm -hmm. that. And it was all about army brats and all these people getting together and talking about the different psychological characteristics they had and how similar it was. So kind of like getting together with a bunch of alcoholics, too, you know? Yeah. It was very – all the people that were involved in that documentary seemed really moved by the fact they were connecting with each other and had learned something about themselves and why they kind of were the way they were. Yeah. I remember reading, from reading the book, one question that always kind of throws um, those of us off that were that grew up in military families is, where are you from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, where do you say, am I, am I from where my parents grew up and, you know, where there's history in my family? I didn't grow up there. Um, right. but I've lived here for so long. I, I, and now Kansas city, I, I consider Kansas city home and yeah. especially this is where I got sober and, and, um, I've got a lot of attachment to this community. And, um, mm-hmm. so this, if, yeah. if people ask me where I'm from, I'm from Kansas city. So, uh, walk us through the drinking history a little bit in there. Okay. Well, like I say, the, uh, very early I started um, sneaking drinks. And I think the first time I got drunk, I was like 12 years old, maybe. Um, it was when I was living in New York. Um, and I just, I just started drinking some liqueur that, that, that my parents had around the house. And I just couldn't stop. I just started mm-hmm. and I couldn't stop. That's the way I drink. And, and I got drunk and my parents saw me and they thought it was kind of funny. You know, uh, the mm-hmm. next day I was sick as a dog. I was really, I was hungover. And I couldn't go to school. And I, um, it, I, this, I consider myself, this was the beginning of my alcoholism. I, I swore mm-hmm. I would never drink again. I felt yeah. horrible. I felt, I felt disgusted with myself for what I did. I drank out of control and I got drunk and I didn't want to do that again. But it sounds like there weren't really any consequences from your parents. They no. were just like, oh, funny. They thought it was funny. In yeah. fact, you know, maybe the seventies was kind of a permissive era, but my parents were totally okay with me drinking. Um, when I was like in high school, totally okay with it. Uh, as long as I wasn't doing drugs, you know, we could drink. And even in the community, you know, I'm talking now in high school. So I, you know, for after that first drunk, I didn't drink again until I got into high school. But at that time, it was totally okay. My parents were fine with it. I could sit around the house and drink a beer if I wanted to. Um, yeah. we, we could take beer with us. Um, it really wasn't hard to get alcohol. Um, we could go to any number of, um, you know, stores that would sell to underage kids mm-hmm. and we would drive around town and whatever someone's parents car drinking beer or whatever. And if the cops ever pulled us over or anything, we just had to pour it out and drive back home. That's right. just the way that it was. Um, but yeah, during my years in high school, when I was drinking, um, my drinking was a little bit different. I mean, the, the thing about it is that, that I recognize was different is that I was the kid that everyone else complained about because of my drunkenness. You know, mm. it was like, you know, even in college when people were having fun at the party, I had to get locked up in my room because, because of my out of control drinking. Mm-hmm. totally out of control drinking like everybody knew look out for john tonight if he has too much yeah yeah and and you know 
and maybe they would laugh about it and um and maybe I would even laugh about it but deep down I I I didn't think it was very funny and um by the time I was 19 I I was really thinking I had a problem and I was uh looking at the Lawrence Journal World thinking about going to AA they had a an advertisement for Alcoholics Anonymous in the Lawrence newspaper and mm-hmm. I thought about it, and I, I thought, no, I, uh, I'm i just too young. Um, and what was going on then, Ben, is my drinking was out of control. Where where the other kids could do your binge drinking party, whatever, I, I just didn't stop. And um, so my grades suffered, and I was put mm-hmm. on probation, and then eventually I didn't meet the probation, and I had to leave college. And it was just a really, really depressing time for me. Was this um, at KU? Yeah, so that KU. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I left KU and I went to live with my parents. And this is where, um, my drinking started ramping up. Uh, at this time, it's kind of interesting too. I, I think I told you before, I did not grow up in a religious family at all, mm-hmm. you know, um, but during this time after KU, my drinking was bad. My life was all screwed up. I didn't let my parents know what was going on. They just thought I was taking a break. And I was looking for answers. So I started looking at religion. And mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about religion. So I read the Bible. I read it, the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> I had a mm-hmm. lot of time on my hands. I read it all. Yeah. And I was watching these at that time. This is the 1980s. And um, these televangelists were really popular. Pat Robertson, the 700 Club, and all this kind of crap. And I'd listen to these people on television. And, mm-hmm. and Pat Robertson in particular, he would say things like, if you really believe and if you pray like you believe, God will answer your prayers. You just mm-hmm. have to, it's a matter of belief. So this kind of set me up. I, 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 um, I was learning about religion and trying to find an answer for myself, drinking the entire time though. Right. And this is when my mother died. This is, this is when, um, she, she committed suicide. I was living mm-hmm. at home and I knew there was something wrong with her. I was, I was, I passed by her room and talked to her and she was very drowsy. Um, but this wasn't entirely unusual. I grew up with a mother who was very drowsy and drugged up. Right. Um, but I turned around and I left and I went up to my room and my father called me down and he said, there's something wrong with my mother. And he was calling an ambulance and I was to go wait out for the ambulance and, um, to let, bring them in. And, um, I remember when the paramedics started working on her, on her, she died from a drug overdose and they were trying to pump her or whatever to keep her alive. And I remember as they were working on her, um, I was praying to God as if I really believe, mm-hmm. um, for her to live. And, um, of course she died. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't pray again after that. That was it until I got to AA. That was my first experience with death, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, how, how did your dad handle it at that time? Not well. It, our entire family fell apart. Uh, mm-hmm. my father, um, he, he, he um just expected me to go and get my life together. He expected me to go back to school, and I did. I, I went back to KU at his order, mm-hmm. um, and I was so ashamed. And and I, I remember I I I was late getting back into school, um, because I came back from my mother's funeral, and straight from my mother's funeral, I was in this class. It was a literature class, and of all the damn things, the 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 professor was was talking about how. And American literature or a, a literary technique about how the death of a young woman and 
And he was going on and on and on about how we were so young and we've never experienced death and all this kind of crap. And, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of just raising my hand and saying, gosh, you know, I just came back from my mother's funeral. Instead of, I just kept, I just kept quiet. And I, and I, I just, I just, I just didn't, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't go Mm -hmm. to school. And so I walked away. I just left. I didn't even, I didn't even unenroll. I just didn't go to classes. And they gave me all F's. <laughs> I got yeah. F's at every single class because I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't, um, withdraw. Right. But that's, yeah, that kind of speaks to the state of grief and depression you're in too. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I can't even be bothered to withdraw from these classes. Yeah. I just left and I got a job and I drank and I drank and I drank and I drank and that's what I did. And I couldn't <laughs> stop. And, um, I drank in a way that didn't make sense because I, um, would tell myself before I would drink that I wouldn't get drunk. And I did every time. It was just insane. And, you know, going back to this though, um, what's set this period off right after my mother's funeral? I'll never forget this. Somebody gave me a shot of whiskey to calm mm-hmm. myself. And it was the best shot of whiskey the best drink i've ever had in my life ben i still Mm -hmm. can remember the way it felt it completely soothed me and made everything okay and i was drunk for the next five years Mm -hmm. (laughs) so are we talking like you had a job and just hitting it hard at night by yourself pretty much yeah whatever my first i went i bounced around from jobs but i had a i had a job i was managing a pizza restaurant in lawrence and Mm -hmm. so after work i'd go out and drink um, but one day I just, I, I was drunk. I came into work and I said, I quit and I left. <laughs> that was it. Yeah. You know, I just left and, um, that, and I went, um, eventually I got another job somewhere in Kansas City, Kansas, unloading trucks. And I just did, I just did what I could to survive and keep my drinking going. Mm-hmm. But it started, the drinking really started spilling over into my life because I started having, um, I started getting arrested. I started, mm-hmm. I, I was a, I was a blackout drinker and, um, I would drive drunk and blacked out. And, and so I started getting arrested and, um, mm-hmm. I started getting DWIs. I had three of them, like in a three, three year period of time. And this is when I finally hit bottom. Mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I was drunk a lot then. I, I'm not going to say I'm drunk. I was drunk every day, but I was drunk a lot. And if I wasn't mm-hmm. drunk, I was sick from being drunk or I was okay. thinking about my next drink. And I didn't make a lot of money and I was always, um, blowing my paycheck, you know, and I, mm-hmm. and, and I was, I wasn't able to eat, you know, uh, sometimes, um, it was all about, um, it was all about getting the next drink. It was either thinking yeah. about drinking, drinking or being sick from drinking and hiding it from everybody. Right. Right. How about like socially? Like, did you have friends? Were you more like, no, uh, I was a loner. I, I started out, um, drinking with people. Going out mm-hmm. to drink with friends. But during that five year period of time, no, I would go out to the bar by myself. I would, I would, um, like, I finally got a job at a bank and it was like my very favorite job I ever had because now I'm finally working in an office and, mm-hmm. and, um, I would just leave work and I would, um, tell myself I'm going to have a few beers to relax. And I would close the bars down. It's three o'clock in the morning. And right. um, that's just the way I drank. But I, I, I went to bars. I didn't drink at home. I went to bars. And I think part of the reason was I 
I was telling myself that I'm just doing something normal. That I guess if I was drinking from home, I did. I I, I guess I felt like maybe that wasn't. You know, I don't know. And I would try right. to control things. Like I would, I would take a twenty dollar bill and I'd put it in my coat pocket at home before I went to the bar, so I would still have some money to eat on. But then mm-hmm. I'd come back and I'd pull that twenty dollars out and drink. <laughs> yep. You know. Yeah. But yeah, that was my life. And I got the I got DWIs, and finally after my third one. Um, I reached a point where um, it was either jump off a bridge or call AA, and I mm-hmm. called AA, and uh, then that started my journey into sobriety. I haven't had a drink since then. Yeah, and you mean that literally. You were thinking about, well, yeah. where can I go jump off a bridge at? Yeah, when yeah. I, my, last, my first day of sobriety, I guess, was when I, they let me out of jail, and um, from the night before keeping me from my last DWI arrest, they let me out of jail and I had to walk to find my car. It was a real hot summer day and I was just walking through the city and I, and I finally realized I had $5 in my pocket. And so I called a cab and he took me to where I thought my car was in this area of Kansas city. They used to call the river key. It's over by the, it's over by the river. And at the time it was kind of like a bombed out area uh, the mafia had wars there in the 1970s, so it was kind of they were trying to bring it back, but it was really kind of a it was not a really nice part of town. Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, I was walking through there looking for my car, and I realized that it wasn't there; it was on the west side. So I had to walk through downtown, and I had to cross a bridge over the highway. And I remember making this walk, and I was watching all these normal people just going to work and stuff, right? And I'm this disheveled guy. No. Just got out of jail. <laughs> just got out of jail trying to figure out where my car was. And I was just like watching the rest of the world like I was watching a movie. I didn't even feel like I was connected to it. So mm-hmm. I get to this bridge overlooking the highway and I stop and I think about jumping. But, you know, I'm looking at these cars passing by and I, I guess there was a part of me that wanted to live more than die. And so I did. I crossed the bridge and I, I, I got to my car. I went home and I called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I remember, I remember very clearly saying, I think I need help. Mm-hmm. And the person on the other end of the phone, they just were like very, very respectful and, and quiet. And, and, and they said, and they were very good. And they told me where there was a meeting. And it took me two weeks to go to that first meeting, but I didn't drink. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened? It's, I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but they, they finally found out at work about what happened. And I had been, been given many, many warnings at work. And finally they said enough and they fired me. And that's what finally got me to go to my first meeting. Mm-hmm. And what was going on, though, during that time, I would go to where this meeting was, and I'd go to the door, but I'd walk away because I, d- I was afraid to go in. But finally, after being fired, and they kind of confronted me about my drinking, about how they were trying to help me, finally, I was able to open the door and walk into that first meeting. Mm-hmm. And what, what was your family's involvement at this time? Were everybody just know. distanced from each other? Or? Yeah. The family, I was close to my siblings, um, but not so much to my father. And I, nobody knew. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew. When I finally told my father that I was in AA, his reaction was he broke down in tears and he started taking bottles of booze and pouring them down the sink. Hmm. And you had been in AA for a little while at that point, at too, that right? Point I was. Yeah. I'd been sober for a while, and I finally had the nerve to tell my family that I was I was going to AA. Well, now mm-hmm. my sister knew because my sister was pretty supportive. I was living with her. Mm-hmm. She, um, I lost everything from drinking. I had no place to live. I had no job or anything, 
And so she took me in uh, and she also threw me out. <laughs> yeah. But that was the best thing that she could do because it forced me to get a job. But during that time that I lived with her, um, I was just going to AA all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like that early period. It is good to kind of engross yourself in that. Mm -hmm. Wow. So walk us through some of your early experiences in AA and, and what you remember thinking uh, first going there and things like that. Well, at my very first meeting, um, the, I, 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 it was the, it was, it changed my life and it was, um, they made me feel very welcome. I'm not a person who joins groups. Um, so going there was really hard. I didn't say anything at my first meeting. And as you know, here in the Midwest, they give first step meetings for newcomers. So they gave me a first step meeting where they go around the room and they tell their, their stories mm -hmm. and I could relate. And, um, I didn't know if I was an alcoholic. Part of me said I was still too young. I was 25 at this time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I probably was the youngest person in the room, but I could relate to everything that was being said. Uh, and not necessarily the specifics of the stories, but how they felt about their drinking. Right. And what, yeah, that's what I always say. Yeah. That's what I always say. It's about how we feel about our drinking. Yep. I could really relate. And, I knew, and I, and they told me to come back and I did. And I had to. I just, it was the only place I felt comfortable. I, I, I wanted to drink all the time. It was really hard in those early days to not drink. And so I went to, that's why I went to so many meetings. But I remember, I, I, I saw two things I remember. I remember the first step. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol and our lives become, became unmanageable. And I thought for sure that that was just the perfect description of where I was at. And then that third tradition that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And I had that and I knew that that would, that I was okay there because mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know if I could put the alcoholic labor label on me. I, I was kind of expecting someone would give me a test and determine I wasn't an alcoholic and tell me I couldn't go there. I, that's right. seriously what I thought. So it was just a relief. And I went to a lot of meetings and I, and I got early on, I was kind of surprised by the religious nature of AA. Um, because again, like I say, I wasn't really a religious person. I gave up on the whole idea of religion after my mother died. Mm -hmm. And, but I fell in line. I just started doing what they told me to do. And I, so I prayed and I, I did all that stuff. Um, whether or not I believe it, I don't know. I really took to heart the fake it till you make it thing. Mm -hmm. And I worked the program the way that the, they, they had me work it in my group. And the group was really into the big book. We read the big book all the time, Ben. My sponsor would have me read a chapter every day for 30 days. And if I missed a day, I had to start all over again. I started mm -hmm. my day on my knees asking God for help. And I finished my day on my knees thanking God for that day of sobriety, calling my sponsor in between. I mean, this is all the, I did the drill, they called it. Yeah. And, um, I talked in, and I started talking in AA. In the beginning, I think I was talking about what was going on in my life, all my fears and, and the problems and so forth. But after a while, after, after I started learning the books, I started talking from the books and I started getting all this, the, these good vibes from the rest of the group. And I right. did that for a while. I sponsored people the way that I was sponsored through the books, studying the books, reading the books, like some, you know, we, it says in the books that self-knowledge is not the answer. Yet we were spending so much time trying to get knowledge. It was, it's weird when I look back on it, but I did that. And, and I, I, I mean, that was my life in AA for a long time. Um, for about 15 years, I guess, um, I was doing, I was doing that hardcore stuff. And then in 1999, my, my father died. Mm -hmm. And when he died, um, my life changed a lot because I realized that there was still a lot that I hadn't gotten done. 
and I still had these regrets of not finishing school. So I went back to school. I went, I went to UMKC and I eventually got my degree and I started dating. Um, and, and dating got to be really easy because of the internet. And, you know, you go on and, and mm-hmm. that's how I eventually met my wife. And so yeah. I, did, I started dating and I, and I started doing things outside of AA. You know, prior to that, all of my life was inside of AA. Everything I did was AA. Um, but now I started having a life outside of AA and it was really nice. I had, I got into, involved in a relationship with a, a young woman for like a, a couple of years and she really opened my, um, my mind to a lot of different things and, it was it was a good period, but I wasn't going to as many meetings. AA mm-hmm. was still like the foundation, and I was still going to meetings, but it wasn't my entire life like it was. And right. so that what's was what's like, a what's a number of meetings at that time like from oh, still probably at least three a week. Right, right. But you know, for the first what from eighty eight to ninety nine, I was like every single day, and and sometimes more than a, more than a few times a day. I always lived close to my home group, so it was always easy to get to meetings, and I loved it. It was just it was just my whole social life and everything. But now it wasn't so much. Um, and but but my life really, I really accomplished a lot. You know, I finished school, I bought a house, I ended up getting married, um, and and then um, this is when I I I started. You know, I moved into another phase where I started questioning my beliefs, um, and I accepted that I was an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, and this really wasn't that long ago. We're getting up now to fairly current times. It was kind of a gradual thing for me, though, actually, my descent into atheism. I mean, I started questioning it more and more and more. But then I read The God Delusion, mm-hmm. um, God's Not Great, I believe. Yeah, um, Hitchens. And, mm-hmm. and these books, Especially the God delusion really changed me, and I got I got interested in science, and mm-hmm. um, I was amazed by it. I mean, like I wasn't I, all these years I wasn't even paying attention to science, and now all of a sudden I'm really interested in it. And um, I started thinking about Alcoholics Anonymous as an atheist, and it scared me at first, Ben, because I'm thinking that I'm not going to be accepted. Um, and I, I didn't want people to know that I was an atheist. I didn't want people to know that I was reading these books at my home group. Mm-hmm. Um, but the very first thing I did is I, I said, how am I going to uh, approach Alcoholics Anonymous? And I started interpreting it secularly. I rewrote the, the chapter of the agnostics. I, yeah. I, I went through the big book, you know, line by line, and I, I tried to understand it as an atheist. And I, and I was very comfortable with it. I actually found it wasn't that difficult because when you go through the big book, There'll be like a perfectly sensible paragraph that talks about something that we do, because this mm-hmm. really is practical stuff that we do. But then it, in, it ends the paragraph by saying, and it's all wonderful for God or something like right. that. And if you just cross out that last part about the attribution to God, and then you can, you can still see the underlying action behind right. what was going on. So anyway, I started talking about this in meetings. I didn't say I was an atheist, but I started saying things like, you know, different from what I was saying before. And and I start getting some pushback from my group, and so I was afraid to come out as an atheist. And right. so I said, "The hell with it." I, I learned about these agnostic groups, and uh, so I started our, our own meeting here in Kansas City. We agnostics Kansas City, and uh, the group's done amazing. And um, it and AA it changed AA for me forever. I mean, um, I, the the program really came to life for me, Ben, when I stopped believing in God. Yeah. And when I stopped looking at the beliefs and started looking at the actions behind the steps, 
Right. And then I got involved with the online community in AA and, and I met Roger from, from, um, Hamilton, Ontario mm-hmm. and got all these people. This totally changed my life, you know, doing this podcast now and the, the, yeah. the website AA Beyond Belief. And God, I, I mean, there's just people from all over the world that I know now. And I, I got, I, st- I, and I fell in love with AA again. I, I got involved with AA service work here locally in Missouri. Um, and I'm very pro Missouri. I love Missouri. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, uh, I think, and, and a lot of people outside, um, that I ta- I'll talk to from like the East Coast or whatever, they think that, you know, they think that us here in the Midwest that we're all, you know, uh, right. But we're not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a lot yeah. of smart people here. So anyway. Yeah. Um, I, had you started your meeting before going to Santa Monica? Yes, I did actually. Okay. I started it in, uh, we started it in July of uh, 2014. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the Santa Monica conference was in November of 2014. Yeah. For those who don't know, we're talking about the first conference of all of us, uh, mm-hmm. heathens in AA out in Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. That's um, where I met you. Yeah. Yeah, and I met you, but I don't know if I remembered meeting you. I know we talked, mm-hmm. and then we kind of reconnected later through our friend RJ in That's Omaha. Right. That's yeah. right. And RJ was a big deal, you know, because she's like r- really close. She was like the first atheist. I, the first, well, I, the first atheist I knew was a guy I started the group with, but he wasn't a big deal about AA, but RJ was. And uh-huh. RJ, I would go up to Omaha and I, w- I would have coffee with RJ and we would sit for hours and talk about how the big book needs to be rewritten. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it still does. I love RJ. She's good. I have not talked to her for a while. I need no, to get a hold of her. She got, she got busy. She got married and then she got involved with her career and everything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, John, you talked about when your dad passed and how that was like a uh, a factor that like propelled you to want to get more things done. What do you think? What do you think that was, or what were you feeling at that time? Because it sounds like your dad. I want to ask too. Do, was there any alcoholism in your family that you recognized? I mean, it sounds like maybe your mom was dependent on I her pills, possibly. But my mom might have been. She may have been using um, even alcohol, but not probably more so drugs. Um, right. But my father, he wasn't. He was the type of, he was a party drinker. Um, mm-hmm. if there was any alcoholism in my family, it would go back to like my, my grandfather on my father's side and my great grandfather. And my great grandfather, there were stories about him. He, because he, he was kind of a colorful character. He was a bootlegger. He used to run rum from the islands into Florida. He's a rum runner. Mm-hmm. But anyway, no, no, no real history. But the thing about when my dad died, I never really felt like I had approval from my father. And, mm-hmm. and it was really weird. As long as he was alive, I just, I don't know. After he died, I felt like I had something to prove. I had, mm-hmm. I had to, sh- you know, and it was really weird because I was accomplishing so much during that time. And I, re- and I remember even missing that my father wasn't there to acknowledge it, to say, I'm proud of you. Mm-hmm. But I was almost doing it in a reaction to his death. I don't know if this rings true for you, but I found that it was almost like, well, I think my dad's re- uh, relationship with me was he was always kind of trying to sabotage whatever I decided to do. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like not taking personal responsibility, but I think the brat inside of me didn't want to give him the pleasure of doing what he wanted me to do. And then after he passed, it was easier for me to live my own life and not worry about getting his approval. But yet I still find myself doing things seeking his approval like yeah. in my own mind yeah that's how it was for me i think so too um yeah you know 
I was just, I was just a fuck up for my father. And, and, you know, during my drinking years, you know, he, he was tired of me. I mean, he loved me. There's so many, it's much contradiction. I mean, you know, he was a, he, a complicated character. I loved my father, but, you know, my father was, could be abusive. You know, Mm -hmm. he he wasn't a real supportive guy sometimes. And sometimes he could be. I mean, right. So unpredictable. yeah. 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 And and that's what I think about when we talk about, you know, alcoholism being a family disease and all this and that. I mean, I do believe there's an inherited part of it. But the thing about alcohol in a family that, that causes problems is it's it's a distraction. It's like a self-centering thing. It is something that, like, if my dad was an alcoholic and it's like it made him not be able to be present for everybody else in their own emotions. Well, there are other ways that people aren't present for people that don't have anything to do with alcohol, too. If you're a narcissist or if you're too into yourself. So the goal is like when we're raising kids, I think, to be able to be open and aware of how they might be feeling at any given time and give credence to that. So so the characteristics of people that grow up in families where that's going on and alcohol is going on are similar because of the distraction and because of the lack of emotional awareness. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. Yeah. So it's a, when you can't nurture somebody else or, or be present for them or be aware, you know, aware of what's going on with them, it's, it's a very isolating feeling. And then that sets us up to turn to alcohol or turn to friends, which leads to turning to alcohol and all that stuff. So it kind of just rolls on from there. John, what were some of the challenges with leaving your home group when you decided to start your own meeting and maybe even leading up to that as you were, I like to call it authenticating your recovery. Like Mm -hmm. you kind of realize you're kind of going along to get along. And then it's like, what do I really believe about this stuff? What do I, what do I think's good? What do I think's bad? Yeah. The group, the, my old group read from the daily reflections for most of their, their readings. And I've always hated that book when it came out. They came out with it quite, I don't know when they came out with it, maybe a long time ago, 15 years ago, but I hated that book always because it was just, it was just dripping with God, you know, and, and you had to read the same damn step, you know, every meeting for a whole month. I just hated that book, but they would read that. But, but I got to the point where the religiosity of the book was so bad. It made me feel so uncomfortable that I would start contradicting it. And I, I, I would just start saying, no, that's not how it is for me. And I, and I, mm-hmm. and, I and I, but I would stick to the program. And I really mm-hmm. felt like I was, I was, I was, um, you know, I was being true to myself, but this is when I started getting, um, the crosstalk. And I, at that time, I didn't even know what crosstalk was, mm-hmm. but people started like, um, sharing at me. Mm-hmm. quoting the book like i've never read the damn thing or i wasn't understanding right. it right or something right. like that and so yeah i started feeling really uncomfortable and and i started feeling where it was like every meeting i went to it was like i had to i had it took all this great effort to to somehow not step on someone's toes and and, and still be honest I, I just felt like i had to be honest and 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 it was hard to be honest anymore because mm-hmm. people didn't like to hear what i was saying and 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 I guess it would have been okay if they, if they didn't like it, but, but they had to c- come back at me. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, God damn, I would say something. And then every single person, like, like the biggest, I'm, I, the one thing I remember was, um, oh, there will be times when no human power could have, could, could help you. You know, that there's some line mm-hmm. in our literature that says that, that, that there will be times mm-hmm. in our lives where absolutely no human power. Well, I said, well, for me, there, that's all there is is human power. Mm-hmm. That's all there is. And, and I've never yet had a time where there was not a human being available to help me. And people just went freaking nuts. Right. They went absolutely nuts. 
that, no, that you've got to have God. You've got to have something more than human power. And I said, well, there isn't anything for me more than human power. So that was really for me, that was, that was the time where I needed to have a divorce, I think, mm-hmm. because they wouldn't accept that from me. Right. You know, I'm clear. There is no God. There is no supernatural stuff. This all we have are people, but people mm-hmm. are pretty incredible. And you can look around the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and you can see um, how the, the magic of people helping each other. Besides, right. in the technology that we have today on the Internet, I mean, I'm never far away from someone. I, you know, it's, I don't know when I, when I'm ever, I'm not going to be around human resources. I guess I'll be on some desert island or something. I have no idea what they're talking about. Right. But, but yeah, that's when I needed to get out. But I didn't make a big deal out of it. I didn't tell anybody that I started a new group. I went to the one guy I knew who was an atheist and I told him, Hey, would you like to start a group for agnostics and atheists? And we just went and did it and we left. Mm -hmm. I didn't say a damn thing. I just stopped going to meetings there and I was quite happy. And, Mm -hmm. and I started meeting people, other atheists in, in AA and they started coming to our group. And, you know, we have this website and everything. So people were finding us from, from you know, and coming to our meetings. And, and the group started growing by leaps and bounds and still is growing. And we started getting a lot of newcomers. Um, at my old group, P3, and I guess I'll mention the name. At my old group, I don't remember us getting a whole lot of newcomers anymore. It was the same old guys. Mm-hmm. Well, my, the new group, uh, we agnostics, almost every meeting. And of course, we are a new group. But, I mean, people right. who are brand new to AA. And people were coming because they said, thank you because I, for, for creating this group, because I would not go to AA because mm-hmm. it's so damn religious. They didn't want to pray. They didn't want to stand around and pray and hold hands and pray, you know, so they were really glad for the group. And, and it was just, it's just amazing. It's still growing. And what I'm happy to see now, the growth that we're getting now is we're getting more women in the group. And for me, that was a big deal because, um, I, the group I went to for 25 years was a men's group. So I was never getting the input of women in uh, right. AA. And so I really value that. And so I'm happy to see that. And also women have a whole other set of issues in Alcoholics Anonymous that I was not aware of. Um, right. so I like that there's a good safe place where they're meeting and that the, I see, I see a lot of good stuff happening. But anyway, that's another subject, but it's really good to see. It's good to see the group. I, I just, you know, it just got me really active in, in AA again. But yeah, I stayed away from my home group. I never heard a damn thing from them. Mm-hmm. And for, I stayed away. And then like, like a year later, I went back and I told them, I said, you know, you haven't seen me around. And this is why I said, I stopped coming to meetings here because I'm an atheist and I didn't feel comfortable here anymore. So I started a new group for agnostics and atheists. And, um, I told them that I said, but you know, uh, this isn't, I'm not saying goodbye, but I, I'm just going to say, see you around. And people were most for part were pretty nice. But mm-hmm. as we went around the room, there were a lot of people had to lay on the religion crap really heavy. Oh yeah. And, um, but other people were okay. But then what the, the, the telling moment that really got me was at the, at the end of the meeting when they were doing the Lord's prayer, I was very respectful. I stood up, but I didn't say the prayer. I stopped saying it a long time ago, but I just did stood there and I watched them. And out of the corner of my eye, I could feel I could feel somebody staring me down, you know. Right. And I looked at him, and he was freaking giving me the meanest, nastiest look, like the look that said, "You are not welcome here." Right. You Conform know? or get the hell out of here. Yeah, he gave me the meanest, nastiest look, and I really. I really regret not going, saying something to that SOB, but I just thought to myself, you know, he's an idiot. He's an yeah. idiot. He's just, he's an ignorant fool. 
and I just didn't mess with it. But this happens in AA. That happened to me. That was harassment. That mm-hmm. was harassment because of because of my worldview. So I don't hell with it. So I didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just I, I have not been back to that group since. Um, and I honestly been. I am. I I'm like you. I ha- I have conflicted feelings about AA. I love it and I hate it. I still have a hard time in regular meetings, mm-hmm. and I don't go to them. I only go to agnostic meetings. When I do go to a regular meeting, you know, it's really hard. I, I just, I mean, it's, it's just really tough. I, 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 I still have a hard time with it. And, and there's a lot of people in, in the agnostic world who think it's important that we go to regular meetings so that we can, you know, be an example. And I can understand that point, but I still have a hard time with it. So mm-hmm. my involvement with AA is through the service structure. It's going to the Western area of Missouri, which I love. And working with my district, which I love, and all the AA people, because when I get involved with the service work, we're t- we're doing actual stuff that we're not having to talk about God or anything. Now they do pray and stuff, but we're going to be able to change that too. We're 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 I think we're going to um change. St- I think we we have a chance of ending the Lord's Prayer at our area assembly. Mm-hmm. We'll see what happens with that. Yeah, I feel like my beef. I went to a meeting yesterday and I sat out the Lord's Prayer. I didn't sit it out. I just stood outside the circle and I got a couple of those glares like you got. Mm-hmm. And it's I I really honestly hope and I think that my beef with the Lord's Prayer is less about the fact that I don't believe in God. And more about the fact that I believe it violates the idea of spiritual, not religious. It sure does. Because, yeah, when people walk in and they hear the Christian prayer, it is the Lord's prayer. To me, that's just, I mean, I almost want to say, well, if you don't like us calling our groups atheists and agnostics, maybe you should be forced to call yourself a Christian group. Absolutely. I don't know. You know, why don't they read a prayer from the Quran? you know? Right, right. Yeah. And has there been any difficulties along the way with um, having an agnostic atheist group or, or you know, oh. the, the growing pains of having a new group? No. Um, I mean, no, not really. We've, we've actually grown by leaps and bounds, and, and, we, and we have no problem with our central office. I later learned that there were some debates about listing us when we very first started, but our central office says no. You know, they're an AA group if they say they are, and we have to follow the traditions and we list them. And so anyway, we've always been real involved with the AA community here and with our central office, so we've never had any problems. We're very integrated into the AA community, our group is. Mm -hmm. So, um, and the group itself, um, yeah, we've had situations like um, every group goes through this period of time when it's new where um, there's a lot of AA bashing and mm-hmm. God bashing and stuff that goes on during the meetings. But people just need to get that off their system because there are people that come to our groups who are going there specifically to recover from AA in a, in a certain extent because they've been abused. And there right. are some people who've been abused by religion too. And they come to our meetings and they have to get that out. So we went through a period of yeah. time where there was a lot of that. But now I think that we've mo- we focus mostly on our own recovery and there's always a lot of fun and laughter in our meetings. They're just very nice meetings, but yeah. Yeah. Well, good. And yeah, I, I love hearing that. And I'm so glad that you guys started that meeting and that it went on before Santa Monica. Like you guys mm-hmm. were some of the pioneers to start it. And, um, I need to get motivated to start one here. We're moving shortly, but I am one of those people who still goes to traditional meetings. I don't go as often, but mm-hmm. even yesterday sitting in the, in the meeting and it's, it's the thing I like about the agnostic atheist meetings I've gone to 
it feels very genuine. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of posturing. And the meeting I went to yesterday, it was just all posturing. And um, it's like, it just felt not very real at all. It's like, and I know we're kind of trying to sell it to the newcomer about how much our life has changed and how great it is now. And I don't want everybody to feel like they have to make everything sound like there's awful times all the time. But it it feels like it sets people up for something that's not always real. It's like, yeah, there's still struggles, even though I'm sober. Yeah. It's about working through stuff. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I, st- I do struggle and go into traditional meetings still. Yeah. But um, in, in the passive-aggressive crosstalk. Yeah. is uh yeah, yeah frustrating at times yeah it's hard if you're if you're going to go against the grain um but as long as everybody says is on the same page i guess and mm-hmm. you can cuz i did that for a long time as you know you know i just talked the talk and yeah i had the urge to speak yesterday and i didn't and then i talked to one of my understanding friends after the meeting and she said you should have said that <laughs> cuz I, I i said i wanted to say that Yes, it's it was about the 12th step and helping people and how much it helps people to get out of themselves. And, and that is true. And I said, but there was I was ready to say there was a certain point in my sobriety where I was trying to help everybody else. And my motive was to ignore taking a look at what I need to take a look at. Yeah. And I think there I do think there is that period of time. And I think AA is a good place to hide from your problems on some level because you can always get out of yourself and go help someone else. And everyone is going to give you. Great, great kudos for being the person who's always willing to take on a newcomer and sponsor mm-hmm. someone and this and that. But I mean, there were times I had seven or eight spons- uh, people I sponsored. And that's just, that's not good for anyone. It's not good mm-hmm. for me. It's not good for anybody I sponsor. Yeah. And and what I was doing was I was running from looking at what I needed to look at. Yeah. And you um, can hide out in AA. And I did probably to a certain extent. And there's probably a period of time, you know, like an early recovery where it's a good idea to go to a lot of meetings. But at a certain point, you know, it's they're probably different for everybody. But you start doing a little bit more outside of the rooms. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole point, I think, of our recovery is to get involved with the world and be citizens of the world and, mm-hmm. um, you know, go out there and do things. You know, go back to college, you know. And when you go back to college, you're going to have to read and study. You're not going to have time for a lot of meetings. So, right. you know, we have to understand that in AA. If you don't see somebody in a meeting, maybe they're doing something good. You know, maybe they're kind of- Right, right. Yeah, and I, I'm too sensitive about things because there was a couple of people I ran into and they were, you know, they, they were people I've texted with off and on always throughout my sobriety. And, like, I've sent a couple of texts and didn't really get a response. Mm-hmm. And then I see them in a meeting. They're like, oh, I've really been wondering about you, how you're doing. <laughs> I think to myself, like, well, you could text me and see how I'm doing. Yeah. And I know the phone works both ways, but... It's um, it's interesting. It's it makes me think of like Scientology, how you get marked as somebody on the way out, and people don't want to reach out and connect with you. I know yeah. people, people that I know that are still drinking that that left AA that I had sponsored before, and I'll shoot them a text every so often, and be like, "Man, how you doing? You know, how's life?" And if they say things are going well, I just say, "Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that." I don't, you know. But AA is like- weird too because you know, it, almost this. We're cultish, but we're not like like a cult. Some cults would like track you down if you're not going to the meeting. You know? <laughs> right, right. But it's like um, in AA, it's like attraction rather than promotion. So it's like you know you're almost afraid to reach to to tell someone, "Hey, where have you been?" You know, or "How are you right. doing?" or whatever. Um, so there's part of that dynamic that that's going on. And Very then true. also something that I learned from Joe C. And we were talking about this yesterday by texting anyway. He 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 posted like when I wrote something about leaving my home group, he wrote something. He says, you know, there's a false sense of intimacy in AA. 
where we kind of get this feeling that we're really closer to these people than we really are because right. we're, we're so honest and open with each other. Um, and, and, and that was going on in my home group. I mean, I was with these guys for 25 years and I thought of them as family, but they really weren't. They, I wasn't right. as close to them as I imagined that I was. Kind yeah. Of, kind of an unsettling thing to, to realize, but it's a healthy thing to realize. And, um, when Joe wrote that, um, he, it was really good that he did that, wrote that because it got me thinking a little bit differently about my relationship with AA. Absolutely. That is, it's very good sobering info too, because it, it is true. It's just like, you know, if you know people, all different aspects of life and you, but especially in AA, you're right. Like there is that sense of intimacy you have that, that when it seems like it's gone after you're not going as often, it's like, oh, was that real or not? Mm-hmm. But then to just understand it's kind of human nature, it's not personal. So And our relationships are so compartmentalized in a way. Like, you know, I know people at work and I, I relate to them through work, you know. And then I know mm-hmm. people in AA, and I relate to them with AA. And then I might know people, like if I'm going to school, that are in my study groups or something. You know what I'm saying? So it's like you have these these, yeah. these compartments of different friends that you know through these different you know things that you do or whatever. Well, John, I suppose we probably want to keep this at a decent time. Yeah, um, I really appreciate this. you sharing this story. Um, it was nice to get all the details, and I always am interested in like the the background of the family and what it was like growing up and. I liked how you said that, like some of these things kind of set us up to get uh, a relief by it from alcohol. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You said that really well. Well, thank you, Ben. I I, I really enjoyed this. I, I didn't know what to think. You, you do a really good job at this, by the way. You do well, good. I'm glad. You're a good I'm interviewer. Glad. It's not an easy skill. It's really, you really did a good job. So. Well, I suppose I should know how. Like I said, I was a counselor for a while, so if there's anything I yeah. should be good at, it's listening and getting people to open up and talk more. So so next week, I'll have to talk to you, and you'll have to share your story. Well, that'd be great. <laughs> be yeah, fun. that'd be great. Well, thanks, Sean. I really appreciate you uh, joining us uh, for this episode of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. Um, as John said, uh, sometime here in the future, maybe you'll hear my story. I don't know if we'll bank it and share it uh, soon or later. But um, again, thanks, everybody, for joining us this week on AA Beyond Belief, the podcast. 